Uh, we're going to continue in our study of Nehemiah today, so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, which you just heard Kurt read masterfully, I might add. Uh, good job, Kurt, with, with all of those. I know that word ashtodites is a tough word to, to spit out. It sounds like there are just too many, syllable, or too many uh, consonants uh, thrown together in too few syllables in that word. But, you know, life is filled with opposition. Would everybody agree with that pretty much? Life is filled with opposition, and not a single person in this room can say that they have never faced opposition of some sort in their lives at some point in their lives, and probably all the time, right? Do I get an amen for that? <laughs> all the time, right? And not a single child downstairs when all is said and done, is going to be, uh, be able to say uh, that they were able to escape it either. Opposition, we might say, is inevitable. You know, we all like the sunny days, uh, you know, even up here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, but the truth is that there will be plenty of cloudy days ahead, maybe especially up here in the Pacific Northwest. But every one of us here today knows that the question is not whether or not we will face opposition, because we will. The question is, how will we handle opposition when it comes our way, when it shows up, when we're least expecting it usually? Sometimes we know it's coming, but usually it's when we least expecting it. You know, there's a, there's a story of a Quaker who was having trouble getting his mule to do exactly what he wanted to do one day. And we all know, uh, you know, not based on experience necessarily, but just because of their reputation. I, I've never dealt with a mule, so I don't know. But I, I know that they have a reputation for being very stubborn creatures. But on one day in particular, this mule was being exceptionally difficult. And the Quaker decided that the best approach to dealing with this situation would be to reason with the animal. And so he stood in front of his mule. He glared it in the eye and locked eyes with his mule, and he said, Thou art a stubborn... You know, they, they all speak like they're in the 15th century. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, he says, Thou art a stubborn beast, and thou knowest that I am a peaceful man, a Quaker. Thou knowest that I could never curse thee, and thou knowest that I could never beat thee. But what thou knowest not is that I would be more than willing to sell you to the man down the street who is no Quaker and who would be more than happy to smack some sense into your head. Now, thankfully, none of us talks, uh, you know, like we're, uh, you know, pre-Shakespeare. Um, but every one of us has something in common with this, uh, you know, this hypothetical Quaker in that we've all uh, undoubtedly felt the way he did on that particular day. Uh, fully aware of the fact that there are things that we either can't do or that we shouldn't do when we're faced with opposition, we know that we should have some restraint. We know that, you know, when it's right to restrain ourselves, but it seems like it would just be a lot easier to smack some sense into some people sometimes, right? I mean, we've all been there. We all know what that feels like, where we just have to practice restraint when we're faced with opposition. And people will go to great lengths to justify uh, you know, not restraining themselves. Uh, when a school district in Virginia a few years ago decided to get rid of about a thousand uh, Apple laptops, which were only uh, four years old, and they got rid of them at $50 each, uh, they cl came close to seeing a riot break out. One of the people who was able to get himself 
you know, a four-year-old iBook that was still perfectly functional for only 50 bucks uh, reportedly beat back other people in line with the folding chair that he had brought with him because he planned on being there for a while. Uh, he got there early and he had this chair and he decided that he could beat people back uh, to get his $50 iBook. And he told the police, quote, they were getting in front of me and I was there a lot earlier than them, so I thought that it was just, end quote. True story. Now we all know that there is a right way to handle opposition and there's a wrong way to handle opposition. So perhaps the question boils down to figuring out what is the right way to handle opposition? Well, in the third chapter of Nehemiah, uh, you know, we, we are given a very broad uh, and general summary of who worked where, you know, what they were doing, and, and so on and so forth. And it was, it was kind of a, one of those things where you're getting the big picture from beginning to end. This is where this person was from beginning to end. But now what we're going to do in this chapter is kind of zoom in and get a closer look at what was actually going on while the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem was taking place. And in this chapter, what we're going to see is Nehemiah facing difficult and sometimes possibly even violent opposition from trouble seekers. And we've seen that the rebuilding of Jerusalem represents and is similar to the rebuilding and the restoration that we have to make in our lives, that we want to make in our lives if we're going to live the lives that God designed us to live. And one of the things that we saw very early in the book, back in in chapter 2 in fact, is that Nehemiah was prepared in advance to face any opposition that came his way. If you'll remember back in chapter 2, these guys named Sambalot and Tobiah uh, showed up. We're not going to call him Toby, I thought for a second there. Let's call him Toby for short. No, let's not. Um, these two guys showed up. First, they're questioning him. You know, what are you doing here? That was in chapter 2, verse 10. And then they make a second appearance later in the chapter in which they openly oppose and publicly scorn Nehemiah's intentions to restore Jerusalem. That's in chapter 2, verse 19. And so what we're going to see today is that these guys aren't done, and they're going to come back. In fact, they're going to come back in greater force, in greater numbers, and the gloves, the proverbial gloves, are going to come off this time as the opposition that Nehemiah and his people face uh, continues to increase. But let's be very clear about one thing up front. Failure does not breed opposition. Failure does not breed opposition. If you are failing, nobody's going to get in your way. You're not a threat to anybody if you are failing. But success does breed opposition. And so thus, if and and maybe even when we're faced with any type of opposition, really what it is is an indication that we're doing something right. We're achieving something, something that, uh, you know, those who maybe don't share our values aren't very happy with. And so I wanted to start off by talking about some of the reasons uh, that opposition shows up. Uh, The first is, you know, sometimes we'll face opposition because our success is a threat to somebody else in either a social way or a political way or a religious way, you know, those types of things. See, the value system of the world is it's dog-eat-dog. It's each man for himself. And so, thus, if the person who opposes us stands to lose something as a result of our success, we can be pretty sure that there will be some opposition. Uh, Number two, sometimes uh, we'll face opposition because uh, somebody else is jealous or prideful. 
uh, the magazine The Atlantic featured an article in May of last year which asked the question whether or not Facebook was making people feel uh, you know, social or increasingly lonely rather than connected. Lonely rather than connected. And so then in November, the University of Edinburgh Business School uh, published a report saying that the more social circles you have represented on Facebook, the more stressed out you're likely to be. And the German study concluded, quote, indeed, access to copious positive news and the profiles of seemingly successful friends fosters social comparison that can readily provoke envy, end quote. And so jealousy is a second reason that we will sometimes face opposition. Number three, sometimes we'll face opposition because we're trying to accomplish something that interferes with the agenda or the value system that the opposition has. And this is probably the most legitimate uh, of all the reasons for there to be opposition, but that doesn't mean uh, that just because it's a legitimate reason to, uh, to oppose, it doesn't mean that their agenda or uh, their intentions are necessarily good. And this is where the majority of opposition that Christians face uh, you know, comes from. This is why you know, you'll find secular groups who uh, you know, file a, a lawsuit to prevent the, the public nativity scene on public grounds. Or you know, they'll, they'll, um, you know, they'll, they'll just put ads up uh, that say, you know, why do you even need to go to church? You know, you're stupid for going to church is the gist of the, of the message. And you, know, you can find those billboards uh, on the internet. You know, I know that a few years ago they were putting them uh, down in Seattle. And you know, it's not that things like a, a public nativity scene hurts anybody. It doesn't hurt anybody. It, it, it offends people. But it doesn't hurt anyone. It, it's, it's, it's harmless. It's just that the very sight of the nativity scene threatens the agenda, uh, the values of the people who hate what Christianity represents. Sometimes we'll face opposition by people who are strict traditionalists and resist any and all change, whether or not change is necessary. James Montgomery Boyce once wrote, quote, in a church where nobody is expected to witness or serve or reach out to anybody, a program to transform that deadly attitude and unleash the church's potential will be rejected by most as undesirable, end quote. And finally, sometimes we face opposition from people because Satan himself opposes what we do. And we should be careful with this, by the way. Be, care- be careful not to, uh, you know, give, attribute everything to him. Uh, you know, while Satan may oppose what we do, and he might even be in the midst of the opposition that we're facing, he doesn't need to spark it. He doesn't need to be the cause of an opposition. Instead, what he'll do, his tactic is typically to exploit and exacerbate, to blow up some hostility that's already in place, a system that, a, a conflicting system that's already in place. And so thus, he's not always the source, even if he's in the middle of it. But we always have to be aware of the fact that we do have a real enemy who opposes the work of God. And in fact, you know what, five minutes ago, we were just singing about him. Uh, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. Yeah, there is a real enemy out there. And sometimes he's in the midst of the opposition. Sometimes he is the cause of the opposition. So having studied or established some of the reasons that opposition will show up, 
and you'll probably want to keep these in mind a little bit, at least in the back of your mind, uh, as we study this chapter. Let's now turn to the fourth chapter of Nehemiah and take a look at the tactics of the opposition. And as we study this chapter, we'll see a, a very clear formula, uh, kind of a recipe for how to experience triumph over our troubles. So let's start with Nehemiah chapter 4, uh, first three verses, verses 1 to 3. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Pretty weak wall, according to their estimations. But what we see here is the first tactic that we'll often face from the opposition, and that is ridicule or mockery. And every single one of us, it doesn't matter how tough you think you are, every single one of us is sensitive to ridicule at some level. And it can be a very effective tactic for our opposition to use because it strikes right at the heart of our insecurities. And, you know, I know that, you know, we will try to uh, put these layers of protection around our insecurities, but mocking and ridicule has a way of just peeling back those layers and just striking right to the heart of the things that we are insecure about. And that's exactly what we see going on here as Sambalot poses five questions, which are all designed to taunt the people, designed to taunt Nehemiah and all the people who are out there working on this wall. He asks, what are those feeble Jews doing? Or what are those weak Jews doing? And this question points out what each of the people was probably feeling as they were working out there in these hot conditions. They didn't have air conditioning or anything back then. You know, they're out under the sun in the desert. It's hot, and they're feeling worn down. They're feeling feeble. They're feeling weak. And not only that, but this question kind of insinuates that you can't even tell that they're building a wall. What is it that these weak Jews are trying to do? Like, is that a wall? Or, you know, what what exactly is that? He says, are they going to restore it for themselves? In other words, they're not bringing in any help? Are are these guys nuts? They're, They're not asking for help? How could they ever possibly think that they're going to get this done? And, you know, the the Jews knew it had been built before by people who were greater in number and greater in strength. So how could they possibly hope to build this one and a half to two and a half long wall by themselves? There weren't a whole army of people out there doing this. There's just these people whose hearts were stirred up to do something for God. That's what we learned in the book of Ezra, remember. So you get the point. The people who are out there, the Jews, are on the receiving end of all of this ridicule. And none of us, these guys are, are just like us in the, in, the, in the sense that they don't like to be ridiculed. They don't like to be mocked. And we've probably all known people who refused to do the right thing for the simple reason that they were afraid of the ridicule that they would receive from their peers, from their friends, maybe from their family or coworkers. And this is exactly uh, how peer pressure works, Right. I mean, this is, this is a, a, a perfect example of peer pressure. You know, a girl will be afraid of being mocked by her boyfriend unless she sleeps with him, and so she doesn't want a reputation of being old-fashioned or, or being a prude, and so what she does is she trades her innocence away for a temporary 
reprieve from ridicule. And, and it's so easy for, for any of us to get trapped in habits the exact same way. We get to the point where we, we fear ridicule if we try to br- uh, break away from habits or lifestyle choices that we've made by people. Who's going to ridicule us? People who matter to us, or, or maybe people who don't matter to us. But the fact is, ridicule gets to the heart of our insecurities. Um, if you watched the Olympics last summer, any, anybody watch the Olympics last summer? Like pretty regularly, I mean, we, we didn't. Uh, we were watching it in Las Vegas most of the time uh, with my parents, and they don't DVR stuff. We DVR everything so that we can fast forward through commercials because I, I hate watching commercials. Um, but but we're at my parents' house, and so we're we're sitting through the commercials. And if you were watching the Olympics like I did, you probably caught some of the commercials for a new TV show in which the two main characters are homosexual men. And I haven't watched this show, but the commercials, man, they, they must have spent a chunk of change, a huge chunk of change on these commercials because they were like three to five minutes long. I mean, it was a synopsis of the whole show. What the commercials revealed about the plot was very clear. These homosexual men wanted to adopt a child together. Um, but who opposes them having a child? An old lady with these old outdated moral values. At least that's how she is portrayed. And so they mock her and they show her to be completely stupid, utterly ignorant, and the American public is slowly brainwashed a step further by seeing anyone who opposes homosexual marriage or homosexual adoption as stupid and old-fashioned. You know, one of the things you'll hear people say is, you know, how can you expect me to believe what the Bible says about homosexuality when it approves of slavery? The Bible never, never, never approves of slavery. It deals with the issue of slavery because it was a reality. It was something that was going on. So it deals with it, but it never promotes it and it never advocates it. And so the, the question that you, the, this question here, you know, how do you expect me to believe the Bible, you know, because of this, is really intended to mock. Christianity, but ultimately it only reveals the ignorance of the person asking the question. So what we see is, you know, ridicule is not only a common tactic, but it's also a very powerful tool. Uh, The ridicule of Sambalot and Tobiah, however, reveal something about them, as they're the ones doing the mocking. It reveals that they're afraid that Nehemiah and his people might actually succeed in doing something. Now, Nehemiah is a fully grown man. And, you know, he's, he's been working out on a construction site. And so you can imagine he's got a lot of testosterone flowing through his body. You know, I've never seen a guy on a construction site who wasn't, uh, you know, filled with testosterone. I mean, those guys are huge and, and uh, yeah, you don't want to mess with them. But so do you think that he takes this, this mocking and this ridiculing lightly? Absolutely not. In fact, you know, he, he's probably a lot like us. Uh, what do we want to do when we get ridiculed? We want to smack some sense into somebody, right? But, you know, let's see what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach or their insults on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. So what we see here, notice there's no transition. 
It, it doesn't say, you know, uh, you know, the people were demoralized. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say uh, Nehemiah went over to a corner by himself to, to pray. No, Nehemiah immediately resorts to prayer. Notice that he doesn't resort immediately to verbally engaging with these guys, which is often our knee-jerk reaction. Somebody ridicules us or we feel uh, insulted by somebody. What's our first reaction? We want to say something. We want to give that person a piece of our mind. But what we see here is he gives God a piece of his mind. Because, you know, uh, and it's a good thing, because um, we all know that verbally engaging with somebody when you're feeling miffed, when you're feeling insulted, when you're feeling angry or slighted, is never a good move. It's never a good move. It never accomplishes anything to verbally engage with somebody when you're feeling miffed. You'll remember what Peter told us about Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, where he wrote that while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Now, as you look at Nehemiah's prayer and the things he's, he's praying for here, you might be thinking, man, uh, what kind of a prayer is that? You know, he's basically praying, God, blow this whole thing up in their faces. Make them pay, God. You know, let, let, them, let them lose everything that they have and be taken away to some other land. And God, please don't even consider the possibility of forgiving these people. Don't forgive them. Don't forget what they've done. Man, moment of honesty here. There are a few people, a very short list, of people that I've prayed similar prayers for in my life. And, you know, I figure if I can admit it to God, I can admit it to you guys as well. But one of the things I've said before about why I love the Psalms so much is just the authenticity, the, the complete honest approach that they have with God. And, and we see the psalmist praying for awful, sinful, horrific things upon their enemies at times. And it's like uh, something you'd expect for a child to pray if you were to take their candy away from them. God, please get them. You know, you, you can kind of picture the quivering lip. God, please, please get them. You know, but you, you have to appreciate the fact that there's an honesty there. They're not pulling any punches. It's totally, you know, just pouring out their heart. And here Nehemiah is doing the same thing. You know, he, he could have just played the self-righteous role. He, he could have done that and, and given just kind of a, a token prayer, you know, something that he's, he's memorized from somewhere. You know, he could have said, oh, God, you know, I, I don't want these guys to destroy our plans, but you're in charge, and so please forgive them. Uh, you know, nobody prays like that when they're angry. Nobody except Jesus. No, but, but you and I, our tendency is, I want that person to suffer. I want that person to pay for what they've done. And, and Nehemiah is just like us in that sense. Nehemiah was upset. He saw this ultimately as an insult to God. The fact that, he w- that these people would demoralize the builders was ultimately, in his eyes, an insult to God. And so, basically, he, he's, he's upset about that. Because, you know, if, if, you can, if you can understand why he would get so upset about somebody insulting God like that for a second, and if you can't understand, uh, man, I, I don't know what to tell you, but uh, other than to say that if, if you don't value God the way that Nehemiah does, then, then yeah, I, I can understand why you, you wouldn't get it. He, he's mad. He wants vengeance. 
he, he's not pretending. He's not going to pretend with God that you know, he's feeling any other way. What's that going to accomplish anyway? Pretending with God. I mean, we all know he, he knows what we're feeling anyway, right? He, he sees through all the layers of protection that we have built up around us, and he sees right to our heart, and he knows what's going on in it. And listen, it won't accomplish as much to pretend with God as it will to be honest with God. God can take it. He knows what we're already feeling. So be honest with God, especially when you're feeling slighted or miffed. He's big enough and strong enough to handle you at your worst. I like to think my spouse, I like to think that Christina can handle me at my worst. God can handle me better at my worst. He can take it. He's big enough. And you can't expect God to change your heart if you refuse to pour it out before him in authentic prayer. So what we see here is that the first step in dealing with troublesome situations and oppositions is to be honest with God about how you're feeling and engage in authentic prayer. Pour your heart out. See, by doing that, you're surrendering both the situation and yourself to God's sovereign will and his infinite justice. He's more just than I am. He's more just than anybody. He'll he'll take care of wrongdoing. And so I want to be able to put the ball in his court. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. So having done that, Nehemiah is able to return to work, And as he tells us next in verse 6. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So the ridicule and the mockery that Sambalat and Tobiah threw their way, it didn't work to throw these guys off track, these, these people. There are girls out there too, remember. Their confidence, their determination to do the work that God called them to do remained steadfast. And look at what Nehemiah does. He sets a manageable goal for everybody to build the wall to half of its height. Instead of saying, hey, you know, we, we've got a long way to go. We've got, a, you know, several more meters or several more feet to build up. He says, let's just build it to half, uh, half of its height and we'll worry about the other half later. And so the people do that. They build it to half of its height and they're determined to continue in the work with this manageable goal. But we wouldn't think for a second that the opposition would be done that easily, would we? They're not. Let's continue with verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> now when Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, it continued, and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. So when the opposition doesn't throw us off track with ridicule, we shouldn't be too surprised when they escalate in the attacks, when the hostility increases. And so Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites mobilize their forces. They combine their forces against the people who are restoring the wall. And listen, if you're trying to fix an area of your life that needs to be repaired and people see that ridiculing you or mocking you doesn't derail you, don't be surprised when tempers continue to increase, opposition continues to rise, and attacks escalate. And sometimes that will maybe mean a physical attack, 
I'd say most of the time it won't. Maybe it means ignoring you or, or giving you a cold shoulder or being passive-aggressive toward you. If it's on Facebook, maybe they'll defriend you. Been there and done that. You know, I've got the T-shirt and the hat to prove it. You know, I, I've, I've been there. But don't expect the opposition to cease just because mocking you and ridiculing you wasn't enough to throw you off track. And again, Nehemiah responds by going to God. This time, he recruits some help, however. Let's continue in verse 9. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. So the first thing we see here is that Nehemiah goes out and recruits some help. He's not praying alone this time. He's got others to pray with him, just like he recruited and inspired people to help him build the wall. Now he's got people alongside him to pray But they do more than just pray. They immediately follow up their prayer with action. They post a guard to keep watch. So they're taking action in the spiritual realm through prayer, and they're taking action in the physical and material realm uh, by posting a guard. So they've got both bases covered. And listen, this is kind of cool. This is exactly how the Christian life is meant to be experienced. This is exactly how we should be living our lives as well, bringing these two aspects, the, the physical and the spiritual, into a simultaneous reality, never neglecting, never overlooking, and never forgetting about either side. They're, they're, they're doing both there. You see that? They've got their, they've got, they're kind of straddling the fence between the material realm and the spiritual realm with a foot on each side. Nevertheless, the attacks escalate. The, the hostility escalates, and what we see is a smear campaign as rumors start to fly. We read in verse 10, Thus in Judah it was said, The strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to build the wall, to rebuild the wall. And so what this shows us is that the the attacks, the rumors that were being spread, these people are too weak. They're demoralized. It's working. It's taking effect. Now they're saying, oh, there, there's so much rubble all over the place. Look at all the, look at, look at how long this is. How are we ever supposed to actually get this done? Especially when, you know, these guys are ready to come in and kill us any second. They're, you know, what's the point in even continuing if they're going to kill us before we finish? See, they, they, they find out that there's going to be an attack. And so they're discouraged, they're exhausted, and they've lost confidence and determination. And once the people are discouraged, the enemy is ready to pounce. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 says, we, or, uh, Our enemies said, They will not know or see until we see, uh, until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. So what we see here is that the enemy, Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, they're all planning a sneak attack. The plan is to take out the Jews when they're least expecting it so that they don't have time to react. But apparently their plans somehow, I imagine by God's provision are overheard by some fellow Jews who lived near the place where this course of action was determined. And so they came and they told Nehemiah and the leaders about this plot. In fact, they come back and they tell them ten times, Nehemiah tells us. 
that's a lot of times to come back. Obviously, they took it seriously. Obviously, they were maybe feeling a little bit ignored. They're not seeing enough going on uh, that they're ready to stop. You know, you, you would warn them and warn them and warn them until you actually see them doing something. And so they're feeling ignored or they're feeling like, you know, more needs to be done. And so Nehemiah responds by figuring out how the opposition would most likely infiltrate the city and setting up security accordingly. Verse 13, we read, Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. So this time, because the attacks are escalating, you know, they're not giving up. They're continuing to escalate. So Nehemiah is forced to identify where the people, where the Jews are vulnerable. Have you ever taken time to do that? Have you ever taken like a, you know, just a really serious look at your life, at where you might be vulnerable, identifying you know, maybe habits that need to be broken or addictions that need to be walked away from? You know, maybe there's a person that you've held on to bitterness toward for a long, long, long time time, and you haven't even realized how vulnerable that makes you toward attacks. Whatever the case, you know, if you've tried to restore and repair broken areas of your life without first figuring out where you are vulnerable and dealing with those areas of your life, the peace that you could find if you could just repair the broken areas of your life will remain an arm's length away. You've got to find the vulnerabilities. You've got to find the open spaces where you're vulnerable and plug it up and break those habits or whatever it might be. And so Nehemiah has identified weaknesses and he's temporarily brought the rebuilding of the wall to a screeching halt. And he's taken action by turning Jerusalem basically into an armed camp. They've got, they've got people stationed around the wall now. They're an armed camp, and that kind of reminds me of the old slogan, which I think was from World War II, maybe World War I. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. You ever heard that? <laughs> See, if, if, if he didn't take immediate action, you know, maybe they wouldn't have had a, a full attack on the city. Maybe it just would have been one or two small attacks, but that would have been enough to completely demoralize the people. They would have abandoned their, their work, and they would have just fled for their lives. But Nehemiah has dealt with the threat in a way that not only builds up the low morale of the Jews, but it also strengthens their resolve against the competition or the opposition. So once their physical well-being is secured, Nehemiah now goes to deal with the spiritual well-being of the people. Let's continue in verses 14 and 15. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. Take very careful note of the fact here that trusting in God is a bigger weapon against your opposition than any weapon your enemy could ever pull on you. Once the people are reminded of the greatness and the awesomeness of God, God's the one in charge, God is on our side, you know, they all take on the attitude, okay, if God is for us, who can stand against us? What do they have? They don't have our God. 
And so they're, they're, they're all of a sudden reinvigorated. They've all, all of a sudden got a, a boost of morale. They've all of a sudden got more courage and confidence. And that was all that was necessary before everybody was ready to get back to work. And this is such a great thing to be reminded of, especially when we're facing opposition, especially when we feel insulted or threatened in some way. It's just a good thing to remember this. And that's why I wanted to introduce the song Stronger uh, as we went through this part of the study. I mean, if you want to experience triumph over your troubles, the most important thing you can keep at the forefront of your mind is that Jesus is in charge. There is nothing that can come against you that he doesn't either cause or allow. There's no storm that you're going to go through where he's not aware of it or he's not able to deal with it. So take heart. Be brave. Be courageous. Don't be afraid to continue in the good works that God has asked you, called you to do. He's designed you to do those things. And he's gifted you to do those things. So follow him, even when he leads you through the valley of the shadow of death. So Nehemiah sees that the people are going back to doing what God called them to do, what they set out to do. But he hasn't made, Nehemiah hasn't made the mistake of letting his guard down just yet. We read in verses 16 to 18. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand uh, doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. So here again, we see them. They've got one foot taking care of spiritual matters, doing what God called them to do, and one hand taking care of physical matters. And I want us to notice, by the way, that there is no logic in determining that just because the coast is clear and just because you're feeling courageous uh, that you should let your guard down. It's, it's not a sign of faith to, uh, to walk through a dark alley down in the ghetto in the middle of the night. You know, that, that's, that's not intelligent. Especially, you know, when we're talking about the, the, uh, the risk of physical harm. Keep, keep yourself wise, right? You don't, you don't want to put yourself into bad situations. And so half of the people are assigned the task of keeping guard, while the other half of the people are able to work, with one hand uh, for working and the other hand for fighting, the other hand for, for uh, holding a weapon. And likewise, as Christians, you know, we should be busy doing what God has called us to do, building the kingdom of God, and yet simultaneously be prayerfully prepared for opposition because opposition, especially when we're talking about God's work, opposition will come. Opposition will come. And just in case trouble came their way, Nehemiah devised a battle plan, which we read about in verses 19 and 20. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are prepared on the, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So finally, the the chapter ends uh, with an emphasis on the amount of self-sacrifice that was required on behalf of these people. Let's continue, verses 21 to 23. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. 
At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. You get the idea when you're picturing this. You get the idea that these people had given up, at least temporarily, the idea of something like comfort. You know, anything that they deemed a luxury, like washing, was set aside. Apparently, uh, yeah, apparently including uh, you know, bathing. I mean, given that, you know, if nothing else, Sambalot and Tobiah would at least stay away from the people because they smelled so bad. <laughs> Now, I don't have a sense of smell, but, you know, sometimes, you know, I know that my daughter or my wife will say, whoo, you've been, you went running, you know, they they know I've been running, and they don't want to come near me. So, uh, yeah, maybe, you know, who knows, maybe that was uh, devised to thwart any efforts to come near these guys. But, you know, through the insults, the threats, the fear, the sleepless nights, the anxiety, that these people are all going through, Nehemiah stayed with them. He stayed right in their midst. He stayed right by their side. You know, this is a guy who had a life of luxury, working for the king. King Artaxerxes, he was the cupbearer. He never had to worry about getting dirty or not bathing uh, or being killed by somebody who might come into the camp. You know, and he considered all all these luxuries that he had Worthless in comparison to living his life out for the glory of God. The glory of God was so much more important to him than being clean or being comfortable or being safe. He gave all those things up for the glory of God. And so Nehemiah is a model of someone who would rather surrender his luxuries to glorify God than bask in the comfort of his luxuries and assume that God will do what God's going to do, you know, with or without him. You know, God doesn't need me. He can use somebody else. This is what it means. This is what it looks like to live for the glory of God. You know, truth be told, following Jesus and living our lives for the glory of God requires incredible sacrifice on our part. But keep in mind what Paul said. Remember last week we saw Paul said that he counted everything that he lost, that he gave up in, in exchange for following Jesus. He counted those things all worthless waste in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And truth be told, we are all going to make sacrifices. Everybody makes sacrifices for things that matter to them. Everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, they they make sacrifices, time, energy, whatever. What matters to them, that's what they'll sacrifice for. And so the question is, does God's glory matter enough to you that you would sacrifice for it? If it does, you'll sacrifice for it. You know, we, we matter to God the Father. And that's why he was willing to sacrifice his only son, Jesus, so that whosoever believes in him would receive eternal life. And Jesus died for us in order that we could freely live for him. And so this chapter in Nehemiah, this is a call for us to continue the course and to live with reckless abandon for the one who died for us, giving us the ultimate example of selfless sacrifice on the cross. 
And the more you embrace that principle of selfless sacrifice and live out that calling, the more you will not only see, but you will experience and you will understand that if God is for you, man, nothing can come against you. Nothing can thwart what God has called you to do. So how do we experience triumph over troubles? What's the formula? What, what are the magic words? What, what, do we, what do we have to do? How do we handle opposition? We trust in God and stay the course. Being wise as serpent, yet innocent as doves, just as D- Jesus told his disciples to be when he sent them out. Nehemiah gives us this, this wonderful formula for experience triumph over troubles. Authentic prayer, both individual, you know, by himself, that's, that was the first prayer, and then corporate with a group. So authentic prayer, persistence, incredible trust in God and in God's faithfulness and action. Continuing the work that we've been called to do. You know, Nehemiah was, was a great leader by anybody's standard. Even by, by worldly standards, he was a great leader. But the thing that set him apart was his incredible faith in God. To put God in the midst of his troubles and to hand it over to him, to hand it over to God and to say, God, here's my heart, here's what I want, but I'm giving it to you. I'm surrendering myself to you. I'm surrendering this whole situation to you. And I'm just going to be content with that. And I'm going to trust in your justice. I'm going to trust in your ability to keep the work going that you have called me to do. Paul told us that God will always finish what he started. Writing in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, whether or not the Lord will complete his work in you, I think is very clearly answered here. The question that remains is, will you finish your work in him? Will you complete the work that he's called you to do? And as great, as awesome, as glorious as God is, we should be confident that he will not only strengthen us, but he will enable us to finish the work that he's called us to do. He's got our days numbered. He's got everything under control. So when you're facing troubles, give it to him. Let's pray. God, we are inspired by this story, by Nehemiah's heart, to be authentic with you. And Lord, we, we ask for your forgiveness for the times when we have been less than authentic with you. Maybe we've been hurting and we've tried to pretend. Maybe we've wanted somebody to to face strict consequences and we try to do the right thing, God, but we hold back from being completely honest with you. And so I pray, Lord, that Nehemiah's model of of authentic prayer would, would just strike a chord with us, to be real with you. Because we know that you see it all. God, thank you for being bigger than any situation, any trouble, any opposition that we face. When you look at the big spectrum of things, they all pass so quickly. And you're in control. Your word says that you hold the universe in your hand. There's nothing that falls outside of your sovereignty. And so we ask, God, that when we are faced with opposition, when we are faced with troubles, when we are feeling miffed, Lord, that we would just have the wisdom to hand it over to you.
but also to continue the course that you set us on, continuing the work that you've called us to do. Thank you for being a God who doesn't call the equipped, but who equips the called. We thank you that if you're for us, nothing can stand against us. You are awesome. You are mighty. Teach us to live for you in light of those truths. For your glory. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.